0: In nomine Pastoris Affiliate Spiritu Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us, save but you, our God. The following is a reading from Dom Prosper Granger's The Liturgical Year. Friday, after the octave of Corpus Christi, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. A new ray of light shines today in the heaven of the Holy Church and its light brings warmth the divine master given to us by a redeemer that is the paraclete spirit who has come down into the world continues his teachings to us in the sacred liturgy the earliest of these his divine teachings was the mystery of the trinity and we have worshiped the blessed three we have been taught who God is we know him in his own nature we have been admitted by faith into the sanctuary of the infinite essence then the Spirit, the mighty wind of Pentecost, Acts 2.2, opened to our souls new aspects of the truth, which it is his mission to make the world remember, St. John 14.26. And his revelation left us prostrate before the sacred host, the memorial which God himself has left us of all his wonderful works, Psalm 110.4. Today it is the Sacred Heart of the Word made flesh that this Holy Spirit puts before us that we may know and love and adore it. There is a mysterious connection between these three feasts of the Blessed Trinity, Corpus Christi, and the Sacred Heart. The aim of the Holy Ghost in all three is to initiate us more and more into that knowledge of God by faith which is to fit us for the face-to-face vision in heaven. We have already seen how God being made known to us by the first in himself, manifest himself to us by the second in his outward works. For the whole Eucharist is the memorial here below, in which he has brought together, and with all possible perfection, all those his wondrous works. But by what law can we pass so rapidly, so almost abruptly, from one feast, which is all directly regarding God, to another, which celebrates the works done by him, to us, and for us? Then again, How came the divine thought, the eternal wisdom, from the infinite repose of the eternally blessed Trinity to the external activity of a love for us poor creatures, which has produced what we call the mysteries of our redemption? The heart of the man-god is the solution of these difficulties. It answers all such questions and explains to us the whole divine plan. We knew that the sovereign happiness which is in God, we knew that the life eternal communicated from the Father to the Son and from these two the Holy Ghost, in light and love, was to be given by the will of these three divine persons to created beings, not only to those which were purely spiritual, but likewise to that creature whose nature is the union of spirit and matter, that is, to man. A pledge of this life eternal was given to him in the sacrament of the Eucharist. It is by the Eucharist that man, who has already been made a partaker of the divine nature, Second St. Peter one four. By the grace of the sanctifying Spirit, is united to the divine Word and is made a true member of this only begotten Son of the Father. Though it hath not yet appeared what we shall be, says St. John, still we are now the sons of God. We know that, when He shall appear, we shall be like to Him. 1st St. John 3 2. For we are called to live as the Word Himself does, in the society of His eternal Father, for ever and ever. 1st St. John. One three, but the infinite love of the Sacred Trinity, which thus calls called us frail creatures to participation in its own blessed life, would accomplish this merciful design by means of another love, a love more like that which we ourselves can feel, that is, the created love of a human soul, evinced by the beatings of a heart of flesh like our own. The angel of the Great Council. Who is sent to make known to the world the merciful designs of the Ancient of Days, took to himself, in order to fulfil his divine mission, a created, a human form, and this would enable men to see with their eyes, yea, and even touch with their hands, the Word of Life, that life eternal, which was with the Father, be but appeared even unto us. First, Saint John, one, two. This human nature which the Son of God took into personal union with himself from the womb of the Virgin Mother was the docile instrument of infinite love, but it was not absorbed into or lost in the Godhead. It retained its own substance, its special faculties, its distinct will, which will ruled under the influence of the Divine Word, the acts and movements of his most holy soul and adorable body. From the very first instant of its existence, The human soul of Christ was inundated more directly than was any other creature with that true light of the word, which enlighteneth every man who cometh into the world. St. John 1.9 It enjoyed the face-to-face vision of the divine essence, and therefore took in at a single glance the absolute beauty of the sovereign being, and the wisdom of the divine decree, which called finite beings into a participation of infinite bliss. It understood its sublime mission and conceived an immense love for man and for God. This love began simultaneously with life and filled not only his soul, but impressed in its own way the body, too, the moment it was formed from the substance of the Virgin Mother by the operation of the Holy Ghost. The effect of his love told, consequently, upon his heart of true human flesh. It set in motion those beatings which made the blood of redemption circulate in its sacred veins. For it was not with him, as with other men, the pulsations of whose hearts are at first the consequence of nothing but the vital power which is in the human frame, until when a reason has awakened emotions produced physical impressions, which quicken or dull the throbbings of the heart. With the man-god, it was not so. His heart from the very first moment of its life responded to the law of his soul, of his soul's love whose power to act upon his human heart was as incessant and as intense as is the power of organic vitality, a love as burning at the first instant of the incarnation as it is this very hour in heaven. For the human love of the incarnate word resulting from his intellectual knowledge of God and of creatures was as perfect as that knowledge and therefore as incapable of all progress. Though being our brother and our model in all things, he day by day made more manifest to us the exquisite sensibility of his divine heart. At the period of Jesus' coming upon this earth, man had forgotten how to love, and he had forgotten what true beauty was. His heart of flesh seemed to him a sort of excuse for his false love of false goods. His heart was but an outlet, whereby his soul could stray from heavenly things to the husks of earth, there to waste his power and and his substance. Luke 15.13 To this material world, which the soul of man was to render subservient to his Maker's glory, to this world which by a sad perversion kept man's soul a slave to his senses and passions, the Holy Ghost sent a marvelous power, which, like a resistless lever, would replace the world in its right position. It was the sacred heart of Jesus, a heart of flesh, like that of other human beings, for whose created throbbings there would ascend to the Eternal Father an expression of love, which would be an homage infinitely pleasing to the infinite majesty, because of the union of the word with that human heart. It is a harp of sweetest melody that is ever vibrating under the touch of the spirit of love. It gathers up into its own music the music of all creation, whose imperfections it corrects, Whose deficiencies it supplies, tuning all discordant voices into unity, and so offering to the glorious Trinity a hymn of perfect praise. The Trinity finds its delight in this heart. It is the one only organum, as St. Gertrude calls it, the one only instrument which finds acceptance with the Most High. Through it must pass all the inflamed praises of the burning seraphim, just as must the humble homage paid to its God by inanimate creation. By it alone are to come upon this world the favors of heaven. It is the mystic ladder between man and God, the channel of all graces, the way whereby man ascends to God, and God descends to man. The Holy Ghost, whose masterpiece it is, has made it a living image of himself. For although in the ineffable relations of the divine persons, he is not the source of love, he is its substantial expression, or, in theological language, the term. It is He who inclines the Holy Trinity to those works outside itself, which produces creatures, and then, having given them being and to some life, He, the Holy Spirit, pours out upon them all the effusion of, the, of their Creator's love for them. And so it is with the love which the man-God has for God and man, Its direct and, so to say, material expression is the throbbing it produces upon his sacred heart. And again, it is by that heart that, like the water and blood which came from his wounded side, he pours out upon the world a stream of redemption and grace, which is to be followed by the still richer one of glory. One of the soldiers, as the gospel tells us, opened Jesus' side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. St. John 19.34 We must keep before us this text and the fact it relates, for they give us the true meaning of the feast we are celebrating. The importance of the event here related is strongly intimated by the earnest and solemn way in which St. John follows up his narration. After the words just quoted, he adds, And he that saw it hath given testimony of it, and his testimony is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye also may believe." For these things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Saint John, nineteen thirty-five and thirty-six. Here the Gospel refers us to the testimony of the prophet Zacharias, who, after predicting that the Spirit of grace would be poured out upon the house of David, and that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Zacharias twelve ten, says, "They shall look upon Him whom they pierced." As quoted by Saint John, nineteen. 37. And when they look upon his side thus pierced, what will they see there but the great truth which is the summary of all scripture and of all history? God so loved the world as to give it his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. St. John 3.16. This grand truth was during the ages of expectation veiled under types and figures, it could be deciphered but by few, and even then only obscurely. But it was made known with all possible clearness on that eventful day when on Jordan's banks, St. Luke 3:21 and 22, the whole sacred trinity manifested who was the elect, the chosen one of the Father, the Son in whom he was so well pleased. Isaiah 42, 1. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Mary. But there was another revelation of deepest interest to us which had still to be made. It was how and in what way would the eternal life brought by Jesus into the world pass from him and each one of us. This second revelation was made to us when the soldier's spear opened the divine source, and there flowed from it that water and blood which, as Scripture tells us, completed the testimony of the Blessed Three. There are three, says St. John, who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that give testimony on earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three are one. That is, they are one because they concur in giving the one same testimony. And this, continues St. John, is the testimony that God hath given us to eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. First, St. John Five, seven, eight, and 11. These words contain a very profound mystery, but we have their explanation in today's feast, which shows us how it is through the heart of the man-god that the divine work is achieved, and how, through the same heart, the plan which was conceived from all eternity by the wisdom of the Father has been realized. To communicate his own happiness to creatures, by making them, through the Holy Ghost, partakers of his own divine nature... Second Peter one four, and members of his beloved Son, this was the merciful design of the Father, and all the works of the Trinity outside itself tend to the accomplishment of that state. When the fullness of time had come, there appeared upon the earth he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. The Spirit, who together with the Father and the Son, had, has already on the banks of the Jordan given his testimony, gives it here again, for St. John continues, And it is the Spirit which testifieth that Christ is the truth, 1st St. John 5.6, and that he spoke the truth when he said of himself that he is life, St. John 5.26. The Spirit, as the Gospel teaches us in St. John 7.37-39, comes forth with the water from the fountains of the Savior, Isaiah 12.3 and makes us worthy of the precious blood which flows together with the water. Then does mankind, thus born again, of water and the Holy Ghost, become entitled to enter into the kingdom of God. St. John 3.5 And the church thus made ready by her sp- for her spouse in those same waters of baptism is united to the incarnate word in the blood of the sacred mysteries. We, being members of that Holy Church, have the same union with Christ, We are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Genesis 2.23 and Ephesians 5.30 We have received the power to be be made adopted sons of God. Saint John 1.12 And sharers for all eternity of the divine life which he, the Son by nature, has in the bosom of the Father. On, then, thou Jew, though ignorant of the nuptials of the Lamb, give the signal of their being accomplished. Lead the spouse to the nuptial bed of the cross. He will lay himself down on the most precious wood, which his mother, the synagogue, has made to be his couch. She prepared it for him on the eve of the day of his alliance, when from his sacred heart his bride is to come forth, together with the water which cleanses her, and the blood which is to be her dower. It was for the sake of this bride that he left his father and the bright home of his heavenly Jerusalem. He ran as a giant in the way of his intense love. He thirsted, and the thirst of desire gave him no rest. The scorching wind of suffering which dried up his bones was less active than the fire which burned in his heart, and made its beating send forth in the agony in the garden the blood which on the morrow was to be spent for the redemption of his bride. He has reached Calvary. It is the end of his journey. He dies. He sleeps with his burning thirst upon him. But the bride who is formed for him, during this his mysterious sleep, will soon rouse him from it, that heart from which she was born has broken that she might come forth, broken it ceased to beat, and the grand hymn which through it had been so long ascending from earth to heaven was interrupted, and creation was dismayed at the interruption. Now that the world has been redeemed, man should sing more than ever the canticle of his gratitude, and the strings of the harp are broken. Who will restore them? Who will reawaken in the heart of Jesus the music of its divine throbbings? The newborn church, his bride, is standing near that open side of her Jesus. In the intensity of her first joy, she thus sings to God the Father, I will praise thee, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing unto thee among the nations. Then to her Jesus, Arise, thou my glory, my psaltery, my harp, arise. Psalm one oh seven one through 4 And he arose in the early morning of the great Sunday. His sacred heart resumed its melody, and with it sent up to heaven the music of the Holy Church. For the heart of the spouse belongs to his bride, and they are now two in one flesh. Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5.31 Christ being now in possession of her who has wounded his heart. Canticles 4.9 Gives her in return full power over that sacred heart of his from which she has issued. There lies the secret of all the church's power. In the relations existing between husband and wife, which were created by God at the beginning of the world, and, as the apostle assures us, in view of this great mystery of Christ and his church, Ephesians 5.32, man is the head, 1 Corinthians 11.3, and the woman may not domineer in the government of the family. Has the woman then no power? She has power, and a great power, She must address herself to her husband's heart and gain all by love. If Adam, our first father, sinned, it was because Eve used, and for evil, her influence over his heart by misleading him and us in him. Jesus saves us because the church has won his heart, and that human heart could not be won without the divinity also being moved to mercy. And here we have the doctrine of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, as far as regards the principle upon which it rests. In this, its primary and essential notion, the devotion is as old as the church herself, for it rests on this truth, which has been recognized in every age, that Christ is the spouse and the church is his bride. The fathers and holy doctors of the early ages had no other way than this of expounding the mystery of the church's formation from Jesus' side. And the words they used, though always marked, by the reserve which was called for by so many of their hearers, being as yet uninitiated, were taken as the text for the sublime and fearless developments of later ages. The initiated, says St. John Chrysostom, know the mystery of the Savior's fountains. From those, that is, from the blood and water, the church was formed. From those same came our mysteries, so that when thou approachest the dread chalice, thou must come up to it, as though thou wert about to drink of that very side of Christ. The evangelist, says St. Augustine, made use of a word which has a special import when he said, the soldier opened Jesus' side with the spear. He did not say struck the side or wounded the side or anything else like that, but he said, he opened Jesus' side. He opened it. For that side was like a door of life, and when it was opened, the sacraments, the mysteries of the church, came through it. This was predicted by the door which Noah was commanded to make in the side of the ark, through which were to go those living creatures, which were not to be destroyed by the deluge, and all these things were a figure of the church. Enter thou into the rock and hide thee in the pit. Isaiah two ten, says Isaiah, and what may what means this but enter into the side of thy Lord, as the expression is interpreted in the thirteenth century by Garrick, a a disciple of St. Bernard and abbot of Igny. St. Bernard himself thus comments the thirteenth and fourteenth verses of the second chapter of Canticle, "'Come, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the hollow places of the wall, O beautiful clefts of the rock, wherein the dove takes safe shelter, and fearlessly looks at the hawk that hovers about. And what may I see through that opening?' The iron hath pierced his soul, and his heart hath come near, so that through the cleft the mystery of his heart is made visible, that great mystery of love, those bowels of the mercy of our God. What else art thou, O Lord, but treasures of love, but riches of goodness? I will make my way to thy full store cellars. I will take thy the prophet's advice and will leave the cities. I will dwell in the rock and be like the dove that maketh her nest in the mouth of the hole of the highest place, Jeremiah, forty, eight twenty eight, sheltered there as Moses was in the hole of the rock, Exodus, thirty three twenty two. I will see my Lord as He passes by. In the next century, we have the Seraphic Doctor Saint Bonaventure telling us, in his own beautiful style, how the new Eve was born from the side of Christ, when in His sleep. And how the spear of Saul was thrown at David and struck the wall. 1 Kings, 18, 10 and 11, as though it would make its way into him of whom David was but a type, that is Christ, who is the Rock. 1 Corinthians 10:4. The mountain cave where all salubrious springs, the shelter where doves build their nests. Our readers will not expect us to do more than give them this general view of the great mystery and tell them how the holy doctors of the Church spoke of it. As far as St. Bernard and St. Bonaventure are concerned, the devotion to the mystery of Christ's side opened on the cross is but a part of that which they would have us show to the other wounds of our Redeemer. The Sacred Heart, as the expression of Jesus' love, is not treated of in their writings with the explicitness wherewith the Church would afterwards put it before us. For this end, our Lord himself selected certain privileged souls through whose instrumentality he would bring the Christian world to a fuller appreciation of the consequences which are involved in the principles admitted by the whole church. It was on January 27th in the year 1281 in the Benedictine Monastery of Helfte near Eiselben in Saxony that our Divine Lord first revealed these ineffable secrets to one of the community of that house, whose name was Gertrude. She was then, in the twenty-fifth year of her age, the Spirit of God came upon her, and gave her her mission. She saw, she heard, she was permitted to touch, and, what is more, she drank of that chalice of the Sacred Heart, which inebriates the elect. She drank of it, even whilst in this veiled of bitterness, and what she herself so richly received she imparted to others who showed themselves desirous to listen. St. Gertrude's mission was to make known the share and action of the Sacred Heart in the economy of God's glory and the sanctification of souls, and in this respect we cannot separate her from her companion, St. MacTilda. On this special doctrine regarding the heart of the man-god, St. Gertrude and St. MacTilda hold a very prominent position among all the saints and mystical writers of the Church In saying this, we do not accept even the saints of these latter ages, by whom our Lord brought about the public official worship, which is now given to his sacred heart. These saints have spread the devotion, now shown to it, throughout the whole church, but they have not spoken of the mysteries it contains within it, with that set purpose, that precision, that loveliness, which we find in the revelations of the two saints, Gertrude and Matilda. It was the beloved disciple, who had rested his head upon Jesus' breast at the supper and perhaps heard the the beatings of the Sacred Heart, the disciple who, when standing at the foot of the cross, had seen the heart pierced with the soldier's spear, who announced to Gertrude its future glorification. She asked him how it was that he had not spoken in his writings in the New Testament of what he had experienced when he reclined upon Jesus' Sacred Heart. He thus replied, my mission was to write for the church which was still young a single word of the uncreated word of God, the Father, that uncreated word concerning which the intellect of the whole human race might be ever receiving abundant truth from now till the end of the world, and yet would never fully comprehend it. As to the sweet eloquence of those throbbings of his heart, it is reserved for the time when the world has grown old and has become cold in God's love that it may regain favor by the hearing such revelation. The Legate of Divine Love, Book 4, Chapter 4 Gertrude was chosen as the instrument of that revelation, and what she has told us is exquisitely beautiful. At one time the divine heart is shown to her as a treasure, which holds all riches within it. At another it is a harp played upon by the Holy Spirit, and the music which comes from it gladdens the Blessed Trinity and all the heavenly court. It is a plenteous spring, whose stream bears refreshment to the souls in purgatory, strength and every other grace to them that are still struggling on this earth, and delights which inebriate the blessed in the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a golden thurible, whence there ascend as many different sorts of fragrant incense as there are different races of men, for all of whom our Redeemer died upon the cross. It is an altar upon which the faithful lay their offerings, the elect their homage, the angels their worship and the eternal high priest offers himself as a sacrifice. It is a lamp suspended between heaven and earth. It is a chalice out of which the saints, but not the angels, drink, though these latter receive from it delights of varied kinds. It was in this heart that was formed and composed the Lord's Prayer, the Paternoster. That prayer was the fruit of Jesus' heart. By that same sacred heart are supplied all the negligences, and deficiencies which are found in the honor we pay to God and his blessed mother and the saints. The heart of Jesus makes itself as our servant and our bond in fulfillment of all the obligations incumbent upon us. In it alone do our actions derive that perfection, that worth, which makes them acceptable in the eyes of the divine majesty, and every grace which flows from heaven to earth passes through that same heart. When our life is at its close, that heart is the peaceful abode, the Holy Sanctuary, ready to receive our souls as soon as they have departed from this world, and having received them, it keeps them in itself for all eternity and beatifies them with every delight. From the preface to the revelations of St. Gertrude translated into French from the New Latin edition published by the Benedictine Fathers of Solemns. Solemn. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But thus revealing to Gertrude the admirable mysteries of divine love, included in the doctrine which attaches to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was, so to say, forestalling the workings of hell, which two centuries later on were to find their prime mover in that same spot. Luther was born at Eiselben in the year 1483. He was the apostle after being the inventor of theories, the very opposite of what the Sacred Heart reveals. Instead of the merciful God, as known and loved in the previous ages, Luther would have the world believe him to be the direct author of sin and damnation, who creates the sinner for crime and eternal torments, and for the mere purpose of showing that he could do anything, even injustice. Calvin followed. He took up the blasphemous doctrines of the German apostate and riveted the Protestant principles by his own gloomy and merciless logic. By these two men, The tail of the dragon dragged the third part of the stars of heaven. Apocalypse 12.4 In the seventeenth century, the old enemy put on hypocrisy in the shape of Jansenism, changing the names of things, but leaving the things unchanged. He tried to get into the very center of the church, and there pass off his impious doctrines. In Jansenism, which under the pretext of safeguarding the rights of God's sovereign dominion, aimed at making men forget that he was a God of mercy, was a favorable system wherewith the enemy might propagate his so-called reformation. God who so loved the world, St. John 3.16, beheld mankind discouraged or terrified, and behaving as though in heaven there was little mercy and less love. This earth was to be made to see that its creator had loved it with affectionate love, that he had taken a heart of flesh in order to bring that infinite love, WITHIN MAN'S REACH AND SIGHT, THAT HE MADE THE HUMAN HEART, WHICH HE HAD ASSUMED, DO ITS WORK, THAT IS, BEAT AND THROB FROM LOVE, JUST AS OURS DO, FOR HE HAD BECOME ONE OF OURSELVES, AND, AS THE PROPHET WORDS IT, HAD TAKEN THE cords OF ADAM, O.C. 11.4. THAT HEART FELT THE THRILL OF JOY WHEN DUTY DOING MADE US JOYOUS, IT FELT A WEIGHT AND PANG WHEN IT SAW OUR SORROWS. It was gladsome when it found that, here and there, there would be souls to love it in return. How were men to be told all this? Who would be chosen to fulfill the prophecy made by Gertrude the Great? Who would come forth like another Paul or John and teach the world, now grown old, the language of the divine throbbings of Jesus' heart? There were then living many men noted for their learning and eloquence, but they would not suit the purpose of God. God, who loves to choose the weak in order to confound the strong, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, had selected for manifesting the mystery of the Sacred Heart, one whom the world knew not, a religious woman living in a monastery which had nothing about it to attract notice. As in the 13th century, he had passed by the learned men and even the greatest saints, who were then living and selected the Blessed Juliana of Liege as instrument for the bringing about the institution of the Corpus Christi Feast. So in this present case, he would have his sacred heart glorified in his church by a solemn festival, and he imparts and entrusts his wish to the humble visitandine of pere le now known and venerated throughout the world under the name of Blessed Margaret Mary, or, in our current time, Saint Margaret Mary. The mission thus divinely given to her was to bring forward the treasure which had been revealed to Saint Gertrude, of which all the long interval had been known to only a few privileged souls. Sister Margaret Mary was to publish the secret to the whole world and make the privilege cease by telling everyone how to possess it. Through this apparently inadequate instrument, the Sacred Heart of Jesus was a heavenly reaction offered to the world against the chillness which had settled on its old age. It became a touching appeal to all faithful souls that they would make reparation for all the contempt and slight and coldness and sins wherewith our age treats the love of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. I was praying before the Blessed Sacrament on one of the days during the octave of Corpus Christi, June 1675, says Blessed Margaret, and I received from my God exceeding great graces of His love, and feeling a desire to make some return and give Him love for love, I heard Him say, Thou canst not make me a greater... Than by doing that which I have so often asked of thee, he then showed me his divine heart and said, "Behold this heart, which has so loved men, as that it has spared nothing, even to the exhausting and wearing itself out, in order to show them its love." And instead of acknowledgment, I receive from the greatest number nothing but ingratitude, by their irreverences and sacrileges, and by the coldness and contempt wherewith they treat me in this sacrament of love. But what I feel most deeply is that they are hearts consecrated to me, which thus treat me. It is on this account that I make this demand of thee, that the first Friday after the act of the, of the Blessed Sacrament be devoted to a special feast in honour of my heart, that thou wilt go to communion on that day and give it a reparation of honour by an act of amendment, to repair the insults it has received during the time of its being exposed on the altar. I promise thee also that my heart will dilate itself, that it may pour forth with abundance the influences of its divine love upon those who shall thus honor it, and shall do their best to have such honor paid to it. By thus calling his servant to be the instrument of the glorification of his sacred heart, our Lord made her a sign of contradiction, just as he himself had been, St. Luke 234. It took more than ten years for Blessed Margaret to get the better by patience and humility of the suspicions wherewith she was treated by the little world around her, and of the harsh conduct of the sisters who lived with her in the same monastery, and of trials of every sort. At last, on June 21st, in the year 1686, the Friday after the octave of Corpus Christi, she had the consolation of seeing the whole community of pare le Monial kneeling before a picture which represented the heart of Jesus as pierced with a spear. It was the heart by itself. It was encircled with flames and a crown of thorns, with the cross above it and the three nails. That same year there was begun in the monastery the building of a chapel in honor of the sacred heart, and Blessed Margaret had the happiness of seeing it finished and blessed. She died shortly afterwards in the year 1690. But all this was a very humble beginning. Where was the institution of a feast properly so called? And where its solemn celebration throughout the church? So far back as the year 1674, the Lord, our Lord had, in his own mysterious way, brought Margaret Mary to form the acquaintance of one of the most saintly religious of the Society of Jesus, then living. It was Father de la Colombiare. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. He recognized the workings of the Holy Spirit in this his servant and became the devout apostle of the Sacred Heart, first of all at paris le monial and then later on in England, where he was imprisoned by the heretics and merited the glorious title of confessor of the faith. This fervent disciple of the heart of Jesus died in the year 1682, worn out by his labors and sufferings. But the society in a body inherited his zeal for the propagation of devotion to the Sacred Heart. At once numerous confraternities began to be formed, and everywhere chapels were built in honor of that same heart. Hell was angry at this great preaching of God's love. The Jansenists were furious at this sudden proclamation, at this apparition, as St. Paul would say, of the goodness and kingdom of God our Savior. Titus 3.4 For it aimed at restoring hope to souls in which they had sowed despondency the big world must interfere, and it began by talking of innovations, of scandals, of even idolatry. At all events, this new devotion was, to put it mildly, a revolting dissecting of the sacred body of Christ. Erudite pamphlets were published, some theological, some physiological, to prove that the church should forbid the subject. Indecent engravings were circulated, and indignant witticisms were made in order to bring ridicule upon those for whom the world had coined the name Cordacole, or heart-worshippers. In the year 1720, the city of Marseilles was visited by a plague. It had been brought by a vessel that had come from Syria. As many as a thousand a day fell victims to the scourge. The parliament, which was mainly composed of Jansenists, had, of course, fled, and there was nothing being done to stay the contagion from spreading. The bishop, Monsignor de Bozunce assembled such of his priests as had been spared. And standing in the avenue which is now called by his name, he solemnly consecrated his diocese to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. At once the plague abated and gradually disappeared. Two years later, however, it again showed itself and threatened to repeat its fierce onslaught, but it was arrested in consequence of the city magistrates binding themselves and their successors for all future ages by a vow to the solemn acts of public worship, which up to this present day have proved a protection and a glory to the city of St. Lazarus. These events were noised throughout the world and were, to, and were the occasion of a feast of the Sacred Heart being kept, not only as hitherto in the monasteries of the Visitation Order, but in several dioceses of France. That noble but tried kingdom is now erecting a national monument in honor of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It is the splendid church now being built on Montmartre near Paris. May that loving heart of our Lord bless his devoted friends, the elder eldest daughter of the church. Like the church, she is under terrible trials, and as they are companions in affliction, may they, through the mercy of the heart of Jesus, be soon united in prosperity and work together for the happiness of the world. As I was saying, the world had coined the name of corticale, or heart worshippers. But human wisdom, or human prejudice, or even human ridicule, cannot withstand God's purposes. He wished that human hearts should be led to love, and therefore worship the sacred heart of their Redeemer. And he inspired his church to receive the devotion, which would save so many souls, that the world might not take heaven's view. The Apostolic See had witnessed all this, and at last gave its formal sanction. Rome had frequently granted indulgences in favor of the devotions privately practiced towards the Sacred Heart. She had published innumerable briefs for the establishment of local confraternities under that title, and in the year 1765, in accordance with the request made by the bishops of Poland and the Archconfraternity of the Sacred Heart at Rome, Pope Clement XIII issued the first pontifical decree in favor of the Feast of the Heart of Jesus and approved of a Mass and office which had been drawn up for that feast. The same favor was gradually accorded to other churches until at length, on August 23, 1856, Pope Pius IX, of glorious memory, at the instance of all the bishops of France, issued the decree for inserting the Feast of the Sacred Heart on the calendar, in making obligatory its celebration by the universal church. The glorification of the heart of Jesus called for that of its humble handmaid. On September 18, 1864, the beatification of Margaret Mary was solemnly proclaimed by the same sovereign pontiff, who had put that last finish to the work she had begun, and given it the definitive sanction of the apostolic see. From that time forward, the knowledge and love of the Sacred Heart have made greater progress than they had done during the whole two previous centuries. In every quarter of the globe, we have heard of communities, religious orders, and whole dioceses consecrating themselves to this source of every grace, this sole refuge of the Church in these sad times. Thousands from every country have gone on pilgrimage to the favored sanctuary of pare le -Le monial where it pleased the divine heart to first manifest itself in its visible form to us mortals. We now put before our readers the Mass which has been approved for our feast. In the liturgy of this feast, there is scarcely any mention made of the heart of flesh assumed by our Savior. When in the last century, there was question of approving a Mass in office in honor of the Sacred Heart, the Jansenists, who had zealous partisans even in Rome, excited so much opposition that the Apostolic See did not deem it prudent to speak openly at that early period on the point which some so angrily disputed. It, however, readily granted both to Portugal and the Republic of Venice an office in which the heart of Jesus, victim of love, and pierced with a spear, was offered to the adorations of the faithful. But in the Mass an office which Rome afterwards gave for the general use she, out of a motive of prudence, kept to the glorification of our Redeemer's love, and of which it could not reasonably be, den- be denied that his heart of flesh was the true and direct symbol. Thus the introit, which is taken from Jeremias, extols the infinite mercies of him whose heart has not cast off the children of men. Miseré secundum multitudinem miserationum suarum, non enim humili. Tavit ex corde suo, et abjecit filios ominem bonus est dominus sperantibus ineum anime correnti illum alleluia alleluia. Misericordias domini in eternum cantabo in generationem et generationem. He will have mercy according to the multitude of his mercies for he hath not willingly afflicted nor cast off the children of men. The Lord is good to them that hope in him, to the soul that seeketh him. Alleluia, alleluia. The mercies of the Lord I will sing forever, to generation and generation. Gloria, Patria, Filio, et Spiritui Sancto, sicudert in principio, et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Miseré secundum multitudinem miserationum suorum, Non enim humilitavit ex corde suo et abiecit filios hominum bonus est dominus sperantibus ineum anime coranti illum alleluia alleluia. The Church, deeply moved with gratitude for the immense blessings brought to her by the Sacred Heart, praise in her collect that her children may have the grace to appreciate those divine benefits and receive with holy joy the fruits they are intended to produce. Concede quesimus omnipotens Deus, ut qui in sanctissimo delecti filii tui corde gloriantes, precipua non in caritatis eus beneficia, recolimus eorum pat pariter et actu delectemur et fructu, per iumdum dominum nostrum. Grant we beseech thee, almighty God, that we who glory in the most sacred heart of thy beloved Son, and celebrate the singular benefits of his love towards us, may rejoice both in their accomplishment and in the fruit they produce. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns in the unity of the Holy Ghost, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Lesson from the Prophet Isaiah, chapter 12 I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for thou wast angry with me. Thy wrath is turned away, and thou hast comforted me. Behold, God is my Savior. I will deal confidently and will not fear because the Lord is my strength and my praise, and he has become my salvation. You shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountains, and you shall say in that day, Praise ye the Lord, and call upon his name. Remember that his name is high. Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath done great things. Show this forth in all the earth. Rejoice and praise, O thou habitation of Sion, for great is he that is in the midst of thee, the Holy One of Israel. My people have done two evils, said God in the ancient covenant. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living water, and have digged to themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13 How wonderful is this complaint! It is made by infinite love on seeing his pro-offered benefits refused. And what is still more wonderful, the God thus slighted by his ungrateful children, who pretended to find their happiness in something which is not himself, overlooks the insult to consult for the remedying of their misery. He is touched at seeing these poor mistaken children trying to get their burning thirst quenched by created things, whereas he alone can quench it. Material goods and outward beauty have misled them and made them slave to their sensual appetites. Their soul, which was created for infinite good, has thought it might find its rest in those feeble and flittering reflections of the sovereign beauty, reflections, and images which were intended to lead them to the divine reality how lead back to the fount- living fountain the poor creature who has been made a dupe of the mirage of the desert and is rushing on deeper and deeper into the scorching sands? O Israel, sing praise to thy Lord, and thou, Sion, bless thy God for his infinite mercy towards thee. Water has sprung forth from the rock which thou hast met in the wilderness, where the madness of thy guilty fever kept thee a wanderer. On the very steep which was precipitating thee downwards towards the flesh, thou hast met thy Jesus. He has made himself thy companion on the way of this earth's life. He is God, but he has been made flesh, that so for thy soul's good he may draw thee, as the prophet foretold with the cords of Adam. O.C. 11.4 That is, by the love and loveliness of the heart of flesh, lead thee to the object which was to satisfy thine own heart, and for which thou wast created. Thus made captive, to the infinite by the bands of this love which Jesus showed thee. Thou hast found thyself within reach of the fountain of water which springeth up into life everlasting, St. John four, fourteen. And thy joy at finding thy Saviour's fountains has made thee loathe the muddy water of the broken cisterns of old. Thy thirst keeps on, but the water is ever there for thee to drink in as deeply as thou willest. Thou hast the sacred heart, which was opened for thee by the soldier's spear, thirst and drink, and both forever. The immense love which fills the heart of the man-god, and has led him to undergo unparalleled sufferings in order to save us, the meekness and humility of that divine heart, which he himself would have us take as the chief characteristic of his whole life, these are the mysteries proposed by the gradual and alleluia-verse, that we may know them, and let them influence our conduct. Ovos omnes qui transitis per viam attendite, et videte si est dolor sicut dolor meus. Cum dilexisset suos, qui erant in mundo infinem delexi Deus, alleluia, alleluia. Dicite ame quia mitis sum et humilis corde, et invenietis requiem animabus vestris, alleluia. O all ye that pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Alleluia, alleluia. Learn of me, because I am meek and humble of heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. Alleluia. Sequel of the Holy Gospel according to John, chapter 19. At that time the Jews, because it was the Parshava, that the bodies might not remain upon the cross of the Sabbath day, for that was the great Sabbath day. besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers therefore came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other that was crucified with him. But after they were come to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear opened his side, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he that saw it hath given testimony, and his testimony is true. We have already explained this passage of St. John's Gospel, and in doing so we brought it into juxtaposition with certain texts from the first epistle of the same apostle, which throw such light on what the Gospel relates regarding the opening of Jesus' side. Let us imitate our mother the church, who hears these mysterious words with such profound attention. This gospel tells us the beautiful path by which she first came. She was born from the heart of the man-god. She could not have had any other beginning than this, for she is the work by excellence of his love, and it is for this his bride that he has accomplished all his other works. Eve was taken from Adam's side in figure of a future mystery, but for the very reason of its being a type and a prediction, no trace was to be left of the fact itself. But in the mysterious fulfillment of the figure that is in Jesus' side being opened that his bride, the church, might come forth, the trace was to remain forever. As often as she looks at this wound, she is reminded of her glorious origin, and that open side is like a ceaseless reminder that she has but to go to that sacred heart, and there she will find everything she needs for her children. The offertory is taken from Psalm 102. Psalm 102 that magnificent hymn of love and gratitude, which extols the numberless favours and infinite mercies of God. Benedict anima mea, Domino, et noli oblivici, omnes retributionis eus, qui replet in bonis desiderium tuum. Alleluia. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never forget all he hath done for thee, who satisfieth thy desire with good things. Alleluia. Let us in the secret unite with the Church in imploring of our Lord to enkindle within our souls the flames of His holy love, that thus our hearts may be in unison with that of our great High Priest, who offers a sacrifice which is both His own and ours. After the secret follows the preface. It is that of the Holy Cross. Jesus was still attached to this sacred wood when His heart was pierced and opened. The choice of such a preface was an act of reverential love paid by our Holy Mother to the glorious instrument which gave her life by working her redemption. Tuere nos domine tua tibi holocausta, offerentes adque ut ferventius corda nostra preparentur, Flammis adure tua divinae caritatis, qui vivis et defendas, Defend us, O Lord, who offer, thee, offer to thee thy holocaust, and that our hearts may be more fervently prepared for it, and kindle within them the flames of thy divine charity. Who and reignest with thee, one God, forever and ever. Amen. It is truly meet and just, right and available to salvation, that we should always and in all places give thanks to thee, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, eternal God, who hast appointed that the salvation of mankind should be wrought on the wood of the cross, that from whence death came, thence life might arise, and that he who overcame by the tree might also, by the tree be overcome, through Christ our Lord, by whom the angels praise thy majesty, the dem- dominations adore it, the powers tremble before it, the heavens and the heavenly virtues, and the blessed seraphim, with common jubilee glorify it, together with whom we beseech thee, that we may be admitted to join our humble voices, saying, Sanctus sanctus sanctus." In order to excite in our children the sentiments of reparation to the sacred heart, which are so much in the spirit of the feast of this feast, the church, at the moment of communion, reminds them how their Jesus was abandoned when in the midst of the sufferings which he endured out of love for us. My heart hath expected reproach and misery, and I looked for one that would grieve together with me, but there was none, and for one that would come for me, and I found none. Alleluia. The church who has just been so closely united with her spouse in these sacred mysteries is able to understand all the more fully the lessons given to her by the sacred heart. She prays that her children may increase in true humility, may abhor the pride which is so rife in this fallen world, and prove themselves to be disciples of him who was meek and humble of heart. Being fed with the peaceful delights and life-giving sacraments, we suppliantly beseech thee, O Lord our God, that thou who art meek and humble of heart wouldst make us to be clean from the stain of every vice and more steadfastly to abhor the proud vanities of the world. Livest and reignest with thee, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We give here the three hymns of this feast. They are full of beauty and sublime teaching. Hymn for Vespers Octor Beate Seculi, Christe Redemptor, Omnium, Lumen Patris de Lumine, desque verus de Deo. Amor coegit tetuus mortale corpus sumore, et novus adam raideres quod vetus ile abstulerat. Ile amor almus artifex, tere mar- marisque et siderum erata patrum miserans, et nostra rumpens vincula non corde discedat tuo, vis ila amoris incliti hoc fonte gentes ha- hauriant, remissionis gratiam. Percusum ad hoc est lancea, pasumque ad hoc est vulnera, ut nos laveret sordibus, unda fluente et sanguine, decus parenti et filio, Sanctoque sit spiritui, quibus potestas gloria, regnumque in omne est seculum. Amen. O blessed Creator of this world, Christ Redeemer of all men, Light of the Father's Light and True God of God, it was Thy love compelled Thee to assume a mortal body, that Thou, the New Adam, mightest restore what the old one had taken from us. That gracious love which had created this earth and sea and stars, had pity on the sins of our first parents and broke our chains. Let not the vehemence of thine admirable love depart from thy heart, and let all nations come to this fount, and thence draw the grace of pardon. For this it was struck by the spear, for this it suffered the wounds, that it might cleanse us from our defilements by the water and blood which flowed from it. Be honor to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. To whom our power, glory, and the kingdom for all ages. Amen. Hymn for Matins. En ut superba criminum et seva nostrorum cohorts, cor sociavit innocens. Merentis haud tale dei. Vibrantis hastem milities, peccata nostra dirigunt ferumque dire cuspidis, mortale crimen acuit. Ex corde sciso ecclesia, Christo jugata nascitur, hoc ostium arce in latere est, genti ad salutem positum. Ex hoc perennis gratia, ceo septiformis fluvius, stolas ut ilic sordidas, Lavemus agni in sanguine. Turpe est redire ad crimina, que cor beatum lacerent, sed emulemur cordibus flamas amoris indices. Hoc Christe nobis hoc pater, hoc Sancte done Spiritus, quibus potestas gloria, regniumque in omne est seculum. Amen. O see how the haughty and savage host of our sins has wounded the innocent heart of our God who deserved far other treatment. It is our sins that direct the spear of the soldier who brandishes it, and deadly sin it is that sharpens the steel of the cruel lance. From this wounded heart is born the church, the bride of Christ. This open side is the door set in the side of the ark for the salvation of his people. From this there flows a perennial grace like a sevenfold stream that there in the blood of the Lamb we may wash our sullied robes. It is a crying shame if we repeat our sins, which wound that blessed heart. Yea, rather let us strive to kindle within our hearts the flames which burn round his and are symbols of its love. Give us this grace, O Jesus. Give it us, thou our Father, and thou, O Holy Spirit, to whom our power glory in the kingdom for all ages. Amen. Hymn for Lauds Cor Acra Legem Continens Non servitutis veteris, sed gratie, sed venie, sed et misericordie. Cor sanctuarium novi, intemperatum federis, templum vetusto sanctuis, velumque sisium utilius. Te bunolatum caritas, ictu patenti voluit, amoris invisibilis, ut venere murd vulnera. Hoc sub amoris simbolo, passus cruenta et mystica, utrumque sacrificium Christus sacerdos obtulit. Quis non amentem redemet? Quis non redemptus diligat et corde in isto seligat eterna? Tabernacula. Decus parenti et filio, sanctoque sit spiritui, quibus potestas gloria, regnumque in omne est seculum. Amen. O heart, thou art holding within thee the law, not of the old bondage, but of grace and of pardon and of mercy. O heart, thou spotless sanctuary of the new covenant, thou temple, holier than the one of old, Thou veil that was torn, but by a tearing of such great boon to us. It was thy love that would have thy heart wounded with this open wound, that we might see through it the wounds of thine unseen love, and venerate them. Under this symbol of love Christ our High Priest, having suffered both cruelly and mystically, offered the twofold sacrifice. Who would not love the Savior who loves him? Who would not love him by whom he has been redeemed? who would not wish to take up his abode forever in this, his Jesus' heart. Be honor to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, to whom our power, glory, and the kingdom for all ages. Amen. In nomine Filii fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen.